Today's scripture is from the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and also Nehemiah, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings, for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. <laughs> Thank you, Molly. We are looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and looking at that that season in Israel's history um, as a time of renewal with the idea and hope that, that God would be at work in, in our church and in our environment, in our culture, in our cities uh, to, to engage also um, an aspect of renewal. So we've looked at this, this general idea, by way of review here a little bit, we've looked at this general idea of what it means to experience the renewal of God. And one of the things that we saw is that we need to renew and strengthen and grow our disgust, really, of sin. Sin in our own lives, sin in the lives of our families and church and in the world around us. We, we need to be disturbed by the sin around us and to avoid being pacified by the, the comforts of everyday life. We saw last week that we, let, that we need to let the Word of God form a vision for what reality could be uh, and what reality is in the kingdom that Christ is at work in, in building into this world and in what we look forward to uh, upon his return. Uh, one of the early um, New England preachers in colonial America had, that had a profound influence um, on the church in that time, and, and still does. His name was Jonathan Edwards, and he uh, was a part of what is called the First Great Awakening, which was the spread of the Spirit's renewal across, the, across early colonial America. And he was a preacher in New England, um, and, and he really prayed for a, a work of God, a work of the Holy Spirit in the church that he had been recently appointed to as his grandfather's church, um, and he, so he came as the pastor, and he, he saw just a lot of what he would consider apathy, um, and saw a great need for renewal. He saw that the, the older, mature people of the church had 
um, really become comfortable and that they sought more to just continue to kind of uh, build their wealth and affluence and to live comfortable lives. And he saw the youth, what he called night walking and tavern hunting, is what he called it. We would call it loitering, uh, going to the bars, going to the clubs, whatever. He saw the, the youth basically leaving the faith, and he really um, began, I mean, Jonathan Edwards was a, uh, was a very serious man. I have a book um, written by his wife. It's called um, Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> but he was a profound intellectual theologian, um, preacher, and I mean, he and he what he really started to do in his church is just preach uh, the foundational teachings of the gospel, heavy on justification and the themes out of Romans and Galatians, very hard on sin and judgment. He has the very popular sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, and what began to happen is that the youth really started to take all of this talk about God and sin and judgment and righteousness and Christ's atonement seriously. And the youth um, got ignited by the Holy Spirit, and that began a significant renewal effort in New England, and it got their parents to be a lot more serious about God. They stopped night walking and tavern hunting, um, and they and their family started engaging conversation and being much more introspective about what God was doing in their lives and sharing that with other people. And it led to, and it was one of the several outbreaks of the Spirit's work in the first great awakening here in colonial America. And so what I want to look at today is what is the power of God? What is the power of the Spirit of God? And how do we experience it? How do we experience it? One of the challenge when you start talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and appropriating the work of the Holy Spirit is that um, it's not something that we can just flick a switch. It's not something we just start doing some things and the Spirit starts work working. But there are some things that we can do um, to fall in line with the Spirit or walk with the Spirit or or. It, it, these are the New Testament ideas. There's the, the Spirit is doing a work. The Spirit is doing a work. And, and I want to just kind of overview a little bit of what do the Scriptures generally say? We're going to do just a few points out of the Old Testament and then look at some familiar books, Colossians, Ephesians, Acts, Philippians, some of the things that we've studied a lot. What, is the, what do the Scriptures say about the Holy Spirit? What is He doing? Well, in the early verses of Genesis... Um, it says, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then immediately it says, and then God said. And then the, the creation acts um, begin to unfold in Genesis chapter 1. And in, and in those short verses there at the beginning of Genesis, you have the work of all three members of the Trinity, you have God the Father who is willing the creative work. You have God the Father's expression of his will, all right, in the form of words. And that's Christ. Christ has always been the word of God. The Colossians teaches that Jesus 
is the, the um, visible image of God. And so he is the image of God. He is the expression of God. So God's expression of his will comes forth in Jesus Christ. And then the Spirit is at work in carrying out those purposes. In the early verses of Genesis, we, all, we see all three members of the Trinity. Nehemiah teaches that the Spirit taught the Israelites through the prophets, initially Moses, that the Spirit was working through Moses to teach and instruct and to guide the nation, um, and that the Spirit warned Israel through the prophets when they began their seasons of decline uh, after Solomon. We'll jump ahead to the book of Acts. The Spirit is empowering the gospel's expansion and reception, after which the Spirit was the means through which God was fulfilling his word through Christ in the gospel of Luke. And so the Spirit's responsibility is to carry out the purposes and the word and to fulfill the word. Just as in Genesis chapter 1, the word was spoken as an act of the will of God through Christ and the Spirit then carries it out. And so the word of God concerning Jesus and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament and what it said about Jesus was the responsibility then of the Spirit to carry out that work through the man Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is then empowering the gospel's expansion from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. And the Spirit is the empowering element all the way through the book of Acts. The Spirit of God commends Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel from Antioch to Rome. We see in Colossians that the Spirit is the source of our inner wisdom, our ability to live in a manner before God that is pleasing to Him and that empowers us to joy and patience and endurance in the midst of trial. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it teaches that the Spirit dwelling in us Christ in us, that's the Holy Spirit, is our hope for glory. We aspire to something better than our current lives are. And we, we fulfill that aspiration oftentimes through idolatrous means that never fulfill. The Spirit in us is constantly pressing us for a greater hope and glory that is ultimately found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see in the book of Ephesians that the Spirit has sealed us, sealed us into God, sealed us into his church, which means we are sealed together by the Holy Spirit as one body. And we see that the Spirit is working to bring us into an, ex into an experience of that unity. So the unity is there. We are one with the Father, we are one with the Son, we are one with the Spirit, and we are one with each other. That is our reality for those who have believed in the gospel. And the Spirit is at work to bring that reality into our experience. This is what Jesus says, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the Spirit is doing. And we see that that Spirit is at work um, in us to bring us to a point of unity because in that expression of unity, the grace and the, and the love and the truth and the power of God is demonstrated because sin destroys, corrupts, and breaks apart. So the ultimate expression of, of the work against sin is love and grace and compassion and forgiveness and kindness and generosity, which brings us together. And in that, the manifold wisdom of God is made known by the Spirit working through the church. 
Philippians, we see that the Spirit is delivering us. Remember Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I am confident that the Spirit at work and your prayers, which the Spirit is prompting and then works through, delivers us, delivers us not being, hey, I'm going to be released from jail. He may be released from jail, but he also might be killed. Paul saw both, both versions of God's deliverance through the Holy Spirit as deliverance. And deliverance then was not that I'm going to be freed from my suffering. Deliverance was I'm going to have the courage to face my suffering in a way that honors Christ. That's what deliverance meant to Paul. He knew that he did not have to be anxious he, didn't, he knew that he did not have to fear. He did not have to be afraid. He knew that he would have the courage by the Spirit to honor Christ in whatever trials would come, and that to him was deliverance. In Galatians, we see that the Spirit empowers us to a, to a walk of faith, okay, when we are not pursuing a righteousness of our own, but are trusting in God to produce a righteousness in us, through the gospel and the Holy Spirit, we've cast aside our desire to build a life according to our own performance and are resting in the, the righteousness, the fulfillment, the completeness that Christ gives in the gospel and that the Spirit is now working out. If we live by faith that Christ's righteousness is our own, and aren't living by a performance standard that we're trying to attain. And in this, the Spirit produces some things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that God is wanting to do in our lives. And I think if we were to all read through that list, those are the things that we would all love to experience a lot more of. We're not, we're not after, I mean, notice, none of, these, none of the things in this list are the healings and tongues and, and extraordinary aspects of the Spirit's power, all of which are true and verifiable, and God does use those things to accomplish His works. But these are what we would call the ordinary things. And renewal, from our first week, renewal is not the growth and expansion of all of these extraordinary things. Renewal is the intensification of the ordinary. The intensification of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and forbearance and gentleness and self-control. When you see those things flourishing, the Spirit is mightily at work in our, in our everyday lives. So Galatians teaches us, and finally the book of Romans, the Spirit is at work in us, and there is a promise. There are, there, God gives us a lot of promises. A lot of times we wish he promised a lot more. Usually around, um, there are people in my life that I love, and I really want God to have an effect on them. You know what? God does not promise that. And that, that is one of the more challenging things. But God does promise to bring life to our own mortal bodies. Those of us who have believed in the gospel, God has promised to transform us. Not the future us, 
the current us. He has promised that he will cleanse sin from our life and make the members of our bodies not instruments of sin, but instruments of good. That is a promise, which means that we're then able to more um, patiently and healthily interact with the people in our lives for their possible redemption, because we can be then more reflective of God's grace and less reflective of impatience and fear. So these are the things that, that God is at work. This is just an overview, really, of who the Spirit is, what he is doing. He is fulfilling the will of God. He is fulfilling the word of God. And so when we look here at the nation of Israel, we have, we have this wall being built. We have this, this movement of God. The Spirit is at work to fulfill the word of God. And so that first those first few verses out of Ezra and says in order for the word of God to be fulfilled God stirs up the king to proclaim hey I'm going to release Israel to go back and then we saw God stirring up Nehemiah the beginning of the book of Nehemiah so God builds this so the verses we looked at God builds this wall 52 days it took once Nehemiah and his crew got going from the day one to day 52, they completed the work of building the wall. Extraordinary speed. And it says that the outsiders saw this as a supernatural work of God. They knew that their God was with them. And so how did Nehemiah and the people experience this power, this extraordinary work of God to, to build this wall so quick? And, and half the time they were doing it in the face of opposition. They were building with one hand and had swords and spears in the other to protect them from invaders and those who were attacking them to prevent the work from going forward. Well, let's, let's just take a look at kind of the flow of how God and the Spirit has been working to this point. First of all, God initiates his purpose in his timing. He told Jeremiah, 70 years and Israel's going to go back. 70 years later, it happens. So God is behind his work, obviously. And it cannot be manipulated. It cannot be pushed forward, and it cannot be moved back. God will accomplish, his, will accomplish his purposes in his time. God placed Nehemiah where he did, and we're going to have a whole sermon on this, that, that God has placed his people at places and times to accomplish his purposes, and all of us need to think that way. So God placed Nehemiah as the cupbearer to the king, probably... And very, very possibly, the most significant and powerful person in the nation there under the king himself. Nehemiah, on Nehemiah's part, was sensitive to God's purposes. He knew the word and he knew the scriptures and he knew the vision that God had for Jerusalem. And then he saw that it's, its conditions. So he was sensitive to God's vision for Jerusalem and sensitive to the condition that it was currently at, and he did not like the disequilibrium between the two of them. The current conditions was not in accordance to the will of God. It was not in accordance to the kingdom. And this greatly upset Nehemiah, which then thrust him into a place of prayer and fasting for a period of four months. 
four months of prayer and fasting to resolve what he saw as this disequilibrium between the kingdom of God and here on earth. Again, Jesus said may the, in, in, in his instructions to us in regard to our prayer, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Nehemiah saw the heavenly vision of Jerusalem and saw the earthly conditions and said, this is not right, this is not good. And he engaged prayer and fasting. We're going to have some specific sermons on what it means to, to pray and to fast. And then God then is stirring. So there's, there's God moving, God's word that informed Nehemiah. Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah fasts. God continues to work in response to the prayer and the fasting and to fulfill his word by stirring the kings. And then he stirs up the people, stirs up the kings to let them go back, stirs up the people for them to want to go back because it's not going to be easy. And then he stirs up in them a willingness to do the work. Most of them, as we will see through Nehemiah, uh, some of them did not want to, to do the work. They didn't want to stoop down. Some of the nobles didn't want to engage and get their hands dirty. And then we see here the Spirit of God empowering the people to do the work in an extraordinary way. So when we start thinking about the Spirit at work in us, we see him working throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. We see that there are times of decline. We see that there are times of apathy in Scripture. It's one of the cycles. People that study these things, they recognize that there are periods of decline, and then the people of God get so fed up with the level of sin in their own lives and in the world around them that, it, that they're stirred. They want to see something different. So God brings a renewal then. It's just part of history. And so... I think we're at a place where renewal would be great. Our culture needs it. The Killers just released a new single. I just come, come to mind. It's not even in my notes. Have any, any of you heard it? It's called um, The Land of the Free. You guys like The Killers? Their songs are becoming more introspective as they mature as a band. Um, yeah, it's a single they just released called Land of the Free. Basically, it's just kind of a laundry list of all of America's problems. It's a great song. And, the, it's, and it's, it's great because it, it artistically and poetically says, um, we have an aspiration for our country. And listen, our aspirations for our country, and this is one of the things that does make America um, one of the most amazing countries in the history of the world. It's, its vision expressed in our founding documents are unique, and they are powerful. I just heard a, a lecture this week at a, at a, it was on NPR, it was a, it was a recording of a, of a seminar that was given at St. Olaf a couple weeks ago on racism in the United States, and, and there was an immigrant who's become a, um, a professor, a philosophy professor. He's from... Um, I think he's from, oh, I can't remember where he is from, but he was an immigrant, a black man, and he explained why America is still the greatest country in the world to live in and why he would never want to live in any other country. And he just told about his experience. And he, and he had an articulation for the American dream that was well beyond, okay, everybody wants to be able to, to work and buy a house. 
not the American dream, he said. We'll get into it, but our dreams for America have always been greater than our experience. It's always been the case. But the articulation, and it's because the articulation and the founding documents have ideals that we've never lived up to, but they are great ideals. And there's an aspiration for our country. But the aspiration for our country needs to grow beyond what, what is stated in our founding documents. It is, even the founding documents, the founding documents are not the expression of the kingdom of God. Do the, does the idea and the vision of the kingdom of God as expressed in the scriptures, is that our vision? And if that's our vision, the, the disequilibrium, so when we sing, when we hear songs like the killers of the land of the free, or we look out into our world and see and experience sin in the way that we do, whether it's sin in our own lives or sin in our families or sins in the church or sins in our culture, are we disgusted by them? That's one of the things that we lack as we, as we think about the spirit at work in us. We don't lack God having a purpose. We don't lack God having a spirit that is able to do his work with great power. We, we don't lack need. We lack a greater vision. We lack a greater vision for what the spirit could do. Again, not healings and i mean if god wants to do all those things in america that would be great if, all, if he wants to do all those things in our city that would be great but what we would really long to see is a greater expression of the ordinary works of the spirit that our lives are transformed on a daily basis so that there's more love and joy and patience and self-control and 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 these other fruits that will actually change how we interact with each other as husbands and wives and parents and children and employees and employers and all these things that we read about in Ephesians and Colossians. We, we are not disgusted enough with sin and evil in our world. And I think the third thing that I want to focus on more, because we're going to hit these other ones um, as we go through. We're going to have an entire sermon just on sin and hit it a few other times as we go through. We lack a dependency on the Holy Spirit. We lack a dependency on a Holy Spirit, or what Roland Allen would call it. We lack a faith in the Holy Spirit to actually carry out his work. You know, the, the charismatic movements across the world are the, the fastest-growing expressions of Christianity. Yes, there are problems with charismatic movements, just like there are problems with fundamentalist and evangelical, Catholic. There's, there's problems in every major segment of Christianity. Okay? There's, you can attack and find weaknesses in every expression. But the charismatic movement, which would be significantly identified by having a strong dependence upon the Holy Spirit, okay, is the fastest growing movement of Christianity globally. Yes, there are issues with prosperity gospel. Yes, there are issues with an anti-intellectualism. Okay, boom. But if you know people involved in these movements or in these churches and you know that they are sincere in their expressions of that and aren't after money, okay, and aren't after just the big shows and expressions of emotionalism, 
at their heart, there is a very sincere love for God. And in these movements, there is a very sincere love for God and a very strong dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Okay, when, when I'm in trouble, oftentimes the, the temptation is, okay, it's something that I've got to study more and do more. All right? If, if a charismatic is in trouble, it's like, you know what, I need to worship and pray more. And we need to do both. We need to study to see what God's will is. We need to do and act and engage. But we need to worship and we need to pray more and to fast more. The ARC, uh, the Association of Related Churches, is a large uh, charismatically oriented movement of church plants and, and it's an association of churches here in the U.S. It's the fastest growing in terms of number of churches planted after the Southern Baptists, which plant like 1,500 churches a year because they've got just piles and piles of cash. Um, the Association of Related Churches, ARC, there's several, a Substance Church here in the Twin Cities is an ARC church. Every year, all of their churches fast for 21 days in February. No, it's, it's, it's after the, the March Madness, sometime after the basketball games are over. It's not 21 days of fasting from all food. It's like everybody picks something that they want to remove from their lives that they use to prop them up to get by. Keller says in his book on prayer that there's always this balance between emotional expressions towards God and theological rightness toward God. There should, I mean, I, I don't know why we have this either-or thing. And he, are, he talks about that. But he says if you come right down to it, he would rather have the, the balance tilted towards a love and affection for God than a theological rightness. Now, he's not casting out theological rightness. I mean, if, you've been, if you know Tim Keller, you know that that's nowhere going to be where he lands. But if we, don't lack an, if we don't have an affection, if we don't have that love for and yearning for and longing for God, we will not experience his power. We can have all the theological rightness in the world and be Pharisees. So what do we need to do? Essentially, if we're, if we are, if we're talking about this need to grow in our dependency upon the Holy Spirit, what we're really talking about is a, is a willingness to release a sense of control. All right, now we can kind of reject this and say, you know what? Something has hurt me when I went all in. Something has hurt me when I became vulnerable. Something has hurt me when I released uh, my desire to, to do, okay, or to act. If, I've, if I haven't taken action, okay, I've lost control and I've been hurt. Or, if you're asking me to move away from just constant action, constant doing, and to, to actually release my, my mind and my spirit to God's work in my life, because it has to be a willing act to release your own will, you may be asked to move out of a safe or secure spot. And so we can... We can 
we can re reject this call to be more dependent upon the Holy Spirit out of fear of losing control. I, I don't want the Spirit to have full reign in my life because I don't know what he's going to do with it. Well, that's the point. <laughs> but the thing is, we do know what he's going to do with it. He is going to align it to his purposes and not our own. And oftentimes our unwillingness to, to lose control is that we really don't want to get to a spot where we're, not, where we're out of the driver's seat in our own lives. We have a purpose that we want to accomplish and we're going to see that it's done. You know what, that is not being submissive to the call of God on your life. And it's an act of the will and an act of your heart, and it needs to be confessed. But that's oftentimes we reject this call to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That's what's at the heart. A, a desire to just stay in control. Now, we can go to the other side. We can... We can fast and pray and worship with all of, and, and, and do all of these things that would express a dependency on the Holy Spirit. We can fast for the 21 days. We can go into the desert. We can go on retreat and have isolated experiences with God. But still with this notion that we're going to control God and accomplish our purposes because there's something that we want God to do. There's something that we want God to do. Some effect we want him to make in our lives. Some effect we want him to make in the lives of others that we love. And say, okay, God, I really want this to happen, so I'm going to fast for a week. I'm going to pray diligently. I'm going to read my Bible I'm going to share the gospel every day. I'm going to do all the things that would reflect a dependency on the Spirit so that you know that I'm faithful and you can trust me. But that same attitude is coming from a place of control. God, I want you to do what I want you to do in your timing according to my purposes because I'm tired of the pain that I'm experiencing. Both expressions forget releasing my will to the Spirit and okay, I'll do all these things so that God does work through his Holy Spirit in a way that both of them are expressions of control. Do you see that? We don't know, we don't know specifically how God is going to work out all of his purposes in our lives. But I, we all know that, that in a very significant way, because you see it from Genesis through Revelation, that, that suffering is going to somehow play a, a significant role, just as it did in Jesus' life. We can't control God. We can, to, we, can we can try to control our lives by resisting God, you know what, life is still going to come up to you and bring an end to your life that you're trying to control. And it's just going to exhaust you to continue to resist God or to continue to manipulate God. Both are exhausting because eventually they both fail. 
and all of your efforts and all of your, your money and all of your time and all of your emotions that have gone into resisting or manipulating God will, will be frustrated. Jesus didn't tell God what he was going to do. Jesus didn't resist God in what he was going to do. He knew that he was headed for some heavy-duty suffering, and he asked God to deliver him from it, but he didn't demand that God deliver him from it. He submitted to the will of the Father because love and joy and a vision for the kingdom was a greater vision in Jesus' mind than him being delivered from suffering. God has promised to work out all things in our lives for our good, for those who are called and those who love him. We don't believe that. I mean, that's a verse that's oftentimes thrown around. But Jesus believed that his joy and his glory would be greater if he followed the will of God, submitted to the will of God, and entered into the suffering that God called him to. But he had to become vulnerable. He had to release his will, and he did. He submitted it. Philippians teaches, all the scriptures teach that this was the, what he was going to do, and that it was going to hurt. As listen here. The pain in our life is an indication of the true nature of sin. And if sin wasn't sin, and if it wasn't completely disgusting, and it wasn't completely corrupt, and completely evil, and completely destructive, and completely the expression of Satan, it wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt. And Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But sin is serious, and it is destructive and it is violent and vile and evil and we need to be disgusted with it if it wasn't if it wasn't there would be no need for christ there would be no need for, there would have been no need for christ to die that's the effect of sin and corruption running and deflecting it it will only exhaust you. God rose Jesus from the dead and delivered him from the effects of sin. And so in Jesus, we have, we have the example, submit to the Father, direct, get a vision for, for what God is doing, see that your life is a part of God's purposes, submit to the will of the Father, quit trying to manipulate God by religion, quit trying to resist God by, by, by running from him. Enter into his purposes, get a vision for what he's doing, just like Jesus did. But in Jesus' doing what he did, he also enabled us to have that power. He enabled us to have that power. Because the Spirit of God is promised to us. And the very things that empowered Jesus to engage the work that God gave him to do, to endure the suffering for the joy and the glory set before him, and to give him a sense of peace and endurance and patience as he went through that, that same spirit is what God promises those who believe in him. And he's promised that to us so that we can do it. We can do it. If you're afraid, 
If you're afraid, don't be. Because God has promised us the strength through the Holy Spirit to enter into that. But we need to be dependent upon that Spirit. We need to be dependent and release our wills to Him. Let me pray.